Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. How might so-called generative AI tools such as OpenAI's ChatGPT impact politics, including the work of legislatures such as the U.S. Congress? In today's episode, we've got three segments that will address this and related questions. In a piece on lawmakers' efforts to understand these new technologies, New York Times journalists Cecilia Kong and Adam Satariano report that in January, close to 150 lawmakers and staffers packed a meeting of the, quote, usually sleepy AI caucus to hear from one of the founders of the AI company, Anthropic. Last month, Kadia Goba, a reporter for Semaphore, spoke to a number of those representatives and congressional staffers involved in the AI caucus. I caught up with her about what she learned and where her reporting on the subject might go next. Then, I spoke to Mika Sifri, an expert observer of the relationship between tech and politics, and the author of The Connector, an excellent Substack newsletter on democracy, organizing, movements, and tech, about how he expects ChatGPT will transform politics, but not likely for the better. And finally, I had a chance to speak with Zach Graves from The Lincoln Network and Marcy Harris from PopVox, who wrote a piece along with Daniel Schumann from Demand Progress on the risks and benefits of emerging AI tools in the legislative branch. First up, here's Kadia. Kadia Goba, I am a politics reporter at Semaphore, a new global outlet. So, Kadia, I appreciate you speaking to me today, and we are going to talk about politics and the intersection with perhaps the hottest topic in technology at the moment, generative AI. You had a great piece in Semaphore, the caucus trying to prevent AI-pocalypse. Tell me about what you're hearing as you wander around Capitol Hill from lawmakers who are trying out ChatGPT. Yeah, so that's exactly it. Um, It's a new technology that Congress, who I think the average age, average age is about 65 on the House side. Um, they're trying to understand what this new technology is, how they can incorporate it, but more importantly, how they can regulate it when, you know, things possibly go off the rails. We saw this happen with crypto and their inability to regulate it. And now I think they're looking ahead, although they, the rate at which AI is advancing, they're probably a little slow to this. And um, it'll be interesting to see how they fare or how they try to catch up. So you talked to a handful of representatives here who are trying to catch up and are, in fact, in some cases, educating themselves, but also hiring staffers and kind of engaging with this topic in different ways. Who did you talk to and what are they up to? Originally, when I started looking at the uh, AI and how it relates to Congress, I found this AI caucus and I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'd never heard of it before. I've been covering Congress since 2019. First person I reached out to was Don Beyer because he had this great article in the Washington Post that said at 72 years old, he was going back to college to get his master's degree in artificial intelligence. So I called him up 
super happy to speak. And then I understood that apparently this caucus started with five people a couple of years ago. And now it's at 30 something, maybe 34. I have it in my reporting. And Essentially, there's one person, Representative Obernalti from California, who has the he also has a master's in AI. But in general, these are people who are interested, members of Congress who are interested in the technology, who want to learn more about the technology, who understand that they are very behind on the technology and want to keep up and they want to be able to talk to they're the 435 members in the house. They want to be able to communicate what this technology can do and how they can, you know, like I said, regulate it beforehand. Byers was extremely helpful in letting me know that some of the caucuses and Obernalti as well, some of their agenda is to, like I said, educate people, but they also want to bring people internally. They want staffers who are familiar with it so they can play with the technology and and which is already happening they want to like i said regulate it and then they want to there's one big push about a committee um that uh, representative lou from california wants they understand that they're probably not going to have the capacity to do all the regulation and that they're going to need like an fec or an agency that actually takes um, control of it. But before they do all of that, they need a commission, you know, Congress, a commission to study the the commission or to study how they should go about doing things. So uh, I say all that to say they are at the very beginning stages. This is about a couple of dozen uh, members of Congress who, like I said, are interested in technology. And I want to see where it goes from here. You mentioned that one of the key drivers at the moment is national security concerns. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Um, of course, most of the executive uh, branch sort of focus on AI has been related to uh, either national security, uh, but more recently, we've also seen this sort of blueprint for AI. I wonder if there was any kind of awareness either of that effort or of some of the related efforts around national security issues. So they understand that the technology is there. Their best bet is, and what the caucus was saying is having hearings so that they understand what the advantages and disadvantages are with relation to national security. Now, a good indication about why they're focused on that or that you know that they're focused on that is one, they said so. And two, Uh, Some of the committees that are interested and that I've understood and are going to have hearings on AI and specifically related to chat uh, GPT are um, Homeland Security, Infrastructure, House Armed Services. They understand the implications around national security. They just need the knowledge around it. And they don't they don't have that. Um, I talked to a couple of people you know, on background who said some of their members are just, they have no idea how this is going to impact. And some of the stuff that they've, internal meetings that they've had are just like discussing that they should actually know about it. So really, again, I can't stress that this is at the beginning stages. You probably know more about the technology and how it impacts national security, but they are learning that on the fly. One of the things that you point out in your piece is that the lawmakers are at least somewhat aware that they're kind of behind the ball, at least with 
you know, in respect to the the EU and, and where the EU is on uh, AI legislation, do, do you feel like they, you know, feel competitive somewhat that, that perhaps uh, they've been beat to the punch by lawmakers across the ocean? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think one of their biggest concerns is actually China. When I spoke to members, they said they wanted to look at the the EU, but thought that it was more restrictive than they wanted to be. And I imagine this has everything to do with catching up or staying at pace with China's technology. One of the big things or one of the repeated concerns I heard was, you know, China can't beat them or they don't want China to steal their technology as it as it relates to AI, which brings us back to the whole national security concern. So from what I'm hearing is, yeah, they'll look at the model and the EU, but probably because everything is a race, they probably won't be as restrictive as this new model, which, again, isn't formalized yet. It still has to go through a process, I'm understanding, and won't go into law until the end of the year. But I think they're looking at looking at that in terms of some kind of guardrails, which we have none now. So, Any response to your article that you might like to share? Do you think the House caucus uh, on uh, AI grew as a result of reading this or I don't know anything at all you want to get across. I thought it was interesting that some of the members I talked to were open about some of their colleagues not having any interest in in this. And I think those are some of the people they want to reach out to. So they understand that this is not about, like I mentioned in my reporting, robots and lasers, red lasers. After the piece published. I found it interesting that people started to reach out, members of Congress that did not get back to me in time and wanted to introduce or talk about the technology. I also thought it was interesting. I didn't mention the piece, but the Senate had an AI caucus and it kind of disappeared, but they said they were going to be bringing it back this year. But probably the most fascinating thing where like people on the outside can will appreciate is how offices are trying to incorporate AI, especially chat GPT. We've already had members like Jake Auchincloss. He was the one of the first members to give a speech that was created through chat GPT on the House floor. And some staffers tell me that they were responding to their constituents using uh, chat GPT. One of the more funnier um, anecdotes is a, one staffer, I think it was Byers' office, said that he tried to write an, an op-ed piece and it, it it just wasn't good. But when he tried to write a piece or write, uh, yeah, write a piece that would pitch the op-ed, that was actually better than the op-ed, which would probably make his job obsolete because that is his responsibility to pitch his boss's, you know, like talking points. So I thought that was very interesting. And I actually did talk to some of the, what do you call it? Opposition research people. It's not in the piece, Mm -hmm. but I talked to Oppo research people who are also incorporating AI or chat, a, a model of chat GPT into how they process information. That's interesting. Can you, can you tell me anything more about that? Uh, Their experiments with that. Sure. So I'm hoping to possibly write something down the line. It's not as sophisticated as what OpenAI did, but they're using models um, from like whatever free software is online where a lot of uh, tech people have access to. And they're using it 
not for gathering, but how you analyze information once you have it. So after people get all the, you know, after researchers gather all the information, they're dumping it into some kind of thing. And then the algorithm then analyzes it and organizes it so then they can start pitching it to individual people. I thought it was really, I'm looking forward to writing that piece, but I thought it was very interesting. Um, and I, I can tell you American Bridge is actually using that right now. It'll be interesting if they use ChatGPT, but he's working on like a separate model that kind of curates the information specific to campaigns. I've uh, talked to multiple people, you know, in journalism communities that think about kind of, you know, tech enabled journalism, AI enabled journalism. And I know that uh, ChatGPT is particularly good at structuring information, um, writing little bits of Python, uh, you know, doing all other kinds of tasks that are necessary to, you know, help you structure large amounts of, of data from, let's say, an Excel sheet or uh, some other kind of unstructured data that you want to using your reporting. So it makes total sense that folks are doing that. I'm just curious. One of the things about Semaphore is, you know, you're, you're able to kind of add your view. So maybe I'll add your view, um, you know, before we close this out. Um, are you excited about these technologies? Do you intend to potentially use them in your reporting process? And are you at all kind of concerned about getting lots of automatically generated pitches? I'm sure your inbox is already overflowing with PR material. Oh, that's a good question. I think, you know, it's we're way off in terms of the analysis, the analysis part of this technology. And it's probably going to be very advantageous for reporters for research. But in terms of sussing out the information and understanding what is appropriate for the specific article you're writing on, I think that still needs a human touch. And I hope that still needs a human touch. Um and no, I don't think they can compete with me in terms of Kadia's view. So that's a very, very good thing. We won't uh, expect you to be replaced, certainly anytime soon. Uh, hopefully that means we'll have the opportunity to come back to you and see what this caucus is up to in six months or a year. For sure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. Next up, Mika Sifri. My name is Mika Sifri. I am the uh, currently the publisher of my own Substack newsletter, The Connector, which focuses on democracy, organizing, technology, built on top of uh, years of having run the Personal Democracy Forum annual conference on tech and politics and uh, Civic Hall, uh, New York City's hub for civic tech. Mika, I'm so glad to speak to you today about this column you had in your Substack: how ChatGPT3 will transform politics, probably for the worse. So you're one of a number of voices who are thinking about right now the implications of large language models on politics, how these various technologies, which have achieved extraordinary you know, propagation in a very short period of time, uh, may change our politics. This column reads like your first thoughts, your first observations. It sounds like you've been playing with ChatGPT. What do you think? 
Well, I am worried that it will, in a way like Google did before, basically reorganize how we get you know our hands on information and because it's so uh, user friendly that we won't realize that the garbage that went into it to make it quote unquote intelligent will come out the other end without people being aware that there's all this massaging and editorial decision making about uh, what you will be allowed to see or not allowed to see that is actually being done off stage by the designers, the coders, you know, the people at OpenAI, the the company uh, that has created ChatGPT. So, you know, once again, we will find ourselves in effect legislated into a new world that we had no uh, vote on. You know, in Go- let me give you a concrete example of what I mean. You know, and Sophia Noble, for example, uh, at UCLA made this point, you know, years ago, uh, if you type into Google search engine, uh, Asian girl or black girl, in her case, the images that come back are the images that Google's algorithms have learned to deliver to users because those are the ones that get the most clicks, right? And those images are not neutral, They're affected by the choices of the users. And since we come from a biased world where, so for example, Asian women are sexualized uh, tremendously, the images that come back are not necessarily ones that, uh, you know, a, a young teenager may be just looking to see how they themselves are represented would find at all comforting. Um, They could be quite disturbing. And this is, you know, the neutral effect of, you know, a technology that was built mostly by white engineers who had no idea that what they were doing might reinforce biases that are already out there among the user base. So more recently, uh, Matali Nakunde from AI for the People uh, had a really nice piece in Ms. Magazine pointing out that if you ask ChatGPT about uh, a prominent African-American woman, uh, I think it was Bessie Hill was the name she referenced, uh, a jazz musician, uh, ChatGPT knows very little about her. Why? Because the corpus that they ingested, which is the English-speaking internet, if you will, doesn't have a lot about African-American women jazz artists. So the inherence of these biases is, is problem number one. Then when you look at how OpenAI is, by its own admission, trying to fine-tune the behavior. Uh, they're, they're aware that there's controversy in the world and that these tools will be asked questions by people interested in controversial topics, and they would like that chat GPT not be used uh, to reinforce extreme points of view, let's say, but who decides what's extreme? So here, for example, they say, if a user asks to write an argument for X, you, meaning the AI, should generally comply with all requests that are not inflammatory or dangerous. Then in their next bullet point, in their current guidance, they say, if a user asked for, quote, an argument for using more fossil fuels, close quote, here, the assistant should comply and provide this argument without qualifiers. Now, why is an argument for using more fossil fuels considered non-controversial? 
right? Maybe it should provide qualifiers. The qualifiers might be the world is, you know, on on a path to very dangerous changes in the climate if we continue to use fossil fuels at the current rate. This is a political decision. And right there in their own guidance, they say, no, provide that argument, you know, without qualifiers. So we the basic problem, which we've always had with these amazing tools, is that they the owners of the tools, the designers of the tools, de facto have tremendous power to shape uh, what we see and know. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't go find other arguments. You know, it's not like we've closed off your access to discover more extreme points of view, however you want to define extreme. It's just that the convenience and usability of these tools will make them prevalent. And you won't even know what you're missing, right? Uh, Because of how much they've, in effect, reshaped our information space. So I do want to kind of just press you on looking at the arc of, you know, the last sort of 25 years, you've already brought up Google search. You've already brought up um, the way in which it changed our relationship to information, how we, you know, find uh, facts, how we find arguments perhaps that may have bearing on our political point of view. We know uh, from great research from all sorts of scholars, I'm thinking of people like Francesca Tripodi, you know, the degree to which that reflexive relationship between the polity and search engines, you know, can really play a huge role in shaping political reality. Do you see these companies perhaps learning from that experience, aware of that experience? Do you see any sign that OpenAI gets the gravity of what you're talking about? It's hard to say because, you know, they're only partially transparent about their own internal process. And for the same reasons, I suspect that Google, say, or Facebook or any of the other big tech platforms have always been shy to reveal, you know, what their internal processes actually are. Because they're, again, once you create such a powerful tool for focusing attention and knowledge, um, everybody wants to game it, right? And if you explain how your algorithm works, you make it easier for the bad actors who want to game it. I mean, that's what the whole SEO industry, you know, is in effect, search engine optimization. So we'll get chat engine optimization too. OpenAI, which started out as a nonprofit, uh, though given who its funders were initially, people like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, I'm not going to ascribe them any particular degree of benevolence. Uh, They're now for-profit. They have a charter, uh, which they still refer to, and they do talk in that charter about trying to make sure that their tools are used for the benefit of all to try and uh, avoid anything that can harm humanity or unduly concentrate power, though here they are building a tool that will concentrate power already. So I, you know, it's kind of like Google's don't be evil. Uh, well, who's defining what's evil? So I don't think we're we can just trust our, you know, our new robot overlords, <laughs> as the phrase goes. And, you know, there's also a, another thing, which is the degree of of sort of tech illiteracy uh, by our political overlords, you know, the, to the degree to which they have not, you know, built up the knowledge or capacity to evaluate these systems uh, with any degree of literacy. There is a group inside Congress who wants to be seen as cool, right? And tech forward, they were last seen promoting, and maybe some of them still are promoting cryptocurrency, 
uh, we can see how well that's gone. Yeah, they they argue that we need to advance cryptocurrency because of financial inclusion. Uh, I think the right word is predatory inclusion. Um, you know, the better to prey on more gullible people. So uh, I think we're we're we we face a challenge in that the the right place to address how these tools will operate in our society is government and regulation. But that you know muscle needs to really be built up much more. I do think the Biden administration is trying. I, you know, we've seen some very good statements, guidances come out of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy that I think are helpful. But where is the institutional capacity going to live, right, inside the government to actually go head to head with the promoters of this stuff? And let's not forget, there's a, a kind of narrative seduction underway, even in how the, you know, the people pushing these tools talk about them. And then us journalists who, you know, have the daily job of translating, uh, you know, fall into a shorthand about this as even, you know, referring to it as artificial intelligence. At best, it's augmented, not artificial. And it's certainly not intelligence. You know, these, these tools are not thinking when they say that you know Microsoft's uh, version of, of ChatGPT hallucinated, you know that's a human uh, word for you know what something that happens inside our brains. It's a metaphor for what happens when uh, a chat tool responds with weird responses. But it doesn't mean there's a brain in there having a hallucination, right? But the the narrative language itself is is seducing us. And I think that's a, a a real danger as well. You can imagine ways that this can make life easier, or you know, automate certain tasks that uh, today waste our time. Um, I can certainly see that. At the same time, I can see how it would get weaponized to further game a political system that is already gamed a lot by you know, astroturf lobbying, for example. We ain't seen nothing yet in terms of you know what you could use a tool like this in terms of generating fake letters to members of Congress that look like real constituent letters uh, because the language is slightly different in each one. There's so much that this could do to further break you know what we need in terms of authentic communication and replace it with just sort of ersatz, untrustworthy kinds of communication. And I don't think that's healthy at all. The speed at which this is rolling out makes me quite nervous. Mika Sipri, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Justin. halfway through this podcast on synthetic media, generative AI, and politics. In a recent piece in Tech Policy Press titled Bots in Congress, The Risks and Benefits of Emerging AI Tools in the Legislative Branch, Zach Graves, Marcy Harris, and Daniel Schumann wrote that Congress must take a deliberate approach to test and learn how these technologies can be applied and to set boundaries that acknowledge their limitations. I caught up with Zach and Marcy about their ideas and when you should anticipate that your representative might take up new tools powered by large language models. Zach Graves, I'm executive director of Lincoln Network. Uh, We're a right of center uh, tech and innovation policy group. 
uh, founded in Silicon Valley in 2013. I'm Marcy Harris. I am CEO and co-founder of Popbox.com, which is a neutral nonpartisan platform for civic engagement and executive director of the nonprofit Popbox Foundation. Let me just quickly, uh, for the sake of my listeners who may not be familiar with your organizations, let me just ask you both to kind of, you know, give us the boilerplate, give us the, the elevator pitch on what you get up to. And Zach, perhaps we'll start with you. And then Marcy, tell us a little bit about what you're doing. I've been working uh, you know, often with Marcy on topics of sort of congressional modernization for a number of years now. We've done a lot of work supporting uh, open data, bulk structured data for legislative information, as well as work to uh, boost congressional capacity in areas like staffing and also the support resources that it has, particularly in science and technology. Uh, so this has taken shape largely through uh, a select committee on the modernization of Congress, which existed in the past two Congresses and now has been reconstituted as a uh, subcommittee within the Committee on House Administration. Uh, so we're excited to see this work continue. So really here we're uh, you know, trying to help bridge kind of new technologies uh, with the need to sort of adapt and modernize them in the context of our governing institutions and Congress in particular. And Marcy, what about PopVox? Yeah, so uh, we got started back in 2010, so a long time ago, back in uh, a moment of great optimism about the future of technology and democracy, uh, and have been through several cycles of uh, optimism, pessimism, realism, and back again. But uh, really, the original concept was to solve my problem as a staffer, uh, as we were being bombarded with digital messages and this new social media uh, around the advocacy that took place during the Affordable Care Act. So Popbox itself is an online platform uh, for constituent engagement. We now focus a lot more on working directly with members or committees rather than kind of boil the ocean, get everybody to come weigh in on a bill. Uh, but that work over the past decade or more led to a lot of insights that uh, we really wanted to get out to a lar larger audience. Uh, and uh, so that uh, led in 2021 to the creation of the, the nonprofit Popbox Foundation, which is where a lot of our thinking, writing, publishing, convening, training work happens. And a lot of times that is in, in collaboration with Zach and, and Lincoln Network. Well, I'm very pleased that you were able to collaborate uh, also with, I should say, Daniel Schumann, a policy director at Demand Progress on this piece for Tech Policy Press, Bots in Congress, the Risks and Benefits of Emerging AI Tools in the Legislative Branch. Uh, so, you know, all the hype at the moment around synthetic media, chat GPT, uh, other kinds of generative AI tools. And you've kind of taken on the question of what the heck could all this be for uh, if used in the context of Congress? I don't know who would like to start, but, you know, what are we seeing right now? Um, is, is Congress about to take advantage of ChatGPT to automate various aspects of how they deal with constituents? I appreciate you going directly to the kind of the workflow of Congress, which is what this piece really deals with. There are other questions about how Congress will understand and regulate and deal with the question of uh, generative AI in larger societal contexts, but the question of how it will potentially apply it to its own workflow uh, is, is really what Daniel and Zach and I address here. And I, I think the answer is, of course it will. 
Uh, it's, you know, as we see members already experimenting with uh, using these new tools for, you know, drafting a speech or other interesting ways to, to play with the new toy, which we've all uh, enjoyed doing, uh, there are some real fundamental questions about capacity that chat GPT or other LLM-based uh, tools really open up. And for an institution like Congress that is so compa- capacity constrained, uh, it makes a lot of sense that this will eventually make its way into the workflow. The question of what is appropriate, what is an appropriate use of, of these new tools within that workflow, I think is, is, is really what's important to discuss now. Yeah, I, I totally agree there. I mean, we're already seeing, you know, members introducing bills or reading speeches that were created with the help of these generative AI tools. And, you know, I think they're, they're still figuring out what the sort of strengths and weaknesses of these sort of set of technologies is. And of course, they're also getting better. One of the arguments we make in our piece is that, you know, while there have been some headlines about using these to write bills, that's not the really best near term use case for it. It's actually more the routine communications that happen, you know, in the sort of internal office operations. It's press releases, it's letters, it's constituent communications. And it's also, you know, another thing they're good at is is summarizing and distilling long documents, which these offices have to process. And so, you know, this also is part of a trend over time where offices have uh, been b- bombarded with more and more communications that they have to ingra- engage with. Part of this is that the number of members of, of the House has stayed the same for a long time and population has grown. It's also because uh, digital tools have lowered barriers to communicating with our, our representatives through email, social media, faxes, phone calls, all of these things. And so that has meant that you know, resources have shifted uh, from policy, from oversight, from other functions, because it's in a very constrained funding environment, you know, to all of these sort of communications tasks. And so our you know, underlying thesis is that it'll you know, help strengthen this institution, which many see as sort of dysfunctional, you know, by taking the pressure off all of these uh, kind of routine communications functions. And so in that way, it could be uh, very valuable for strengthening the institution. So when I look at the homepage right now for ChatGPT, you know, the service is fairly clear about its limitations, right? May occasionally generate incorrect information, may occasionally produce harmful instructions or biased content, limited knowledge of the world and events after 2021. So clearly, you know, there's going to have to be some testing benchmark for when or whether if it's appropriate at any point for Congress to utilize tools like ChatGPT, what's the time horizon you imagine? Um, you, you know, you already point to the fact that multiple members are experimenting, playing with the technology just the same way that people across the world apparently are. Do you imagine this is something that happens in a year, three years, five, ten? What's the this you're you're suggesting? The, like? By this, I mean the utilization specifically of large language model tools. I mean, do, you, do, do some you, of the things that you're referring to. I mean, it depends how extensive you mean, because they're already mm-hmm. using it, right? Uh, and there's not a lot of controls. Uh, I mean, each of these, it's not like the executive branch where there's a central IT bureaucracy like GSA or someone saying, you can use this, you can't use this. I mean, to some extent in the House, the, there's an office called the chief administrative officer, which set some guidelines for technologies. But, you know, in practice, Individual offices are kind of autonomous in what they can and, and, and can't do. And, you know, as we see, 
they're they're already uh, you know utilizing some of the stuff. The key question to to really optimizing it and taking advantage of it, I think, is integrating with some of the existing vendor ecosystem, which I know Marcy works very closely with. Uh, for example, there are these tools that that help them process constituent communications and casework and integrating uh, to the back end of these tools, I think is going to be really important. I'll, I'll kick it over to Marcy though, if she has uh, other thoughts here. Yeah, I think on, you know, it, probably many listeners understand that a lot of the work of a congressional office is correspondence based. So even things like drafting a letter to an agency or, uh, you know, drafting a response to constituent communication or drafting a one minute speech congratulating the high school team for winning their game. You know, these are not sensitive, um, uh, in, in most cases, not uh, uh you know, things that require specialized um, current knowledge. It really is just that um, drafting function. So I think there, you know, there's the opportunity for the tools to be very helpful. Again, you know, the the human has to still review it, make sure it's factual and addresses the issue. Uh, And, you know, for a member of Congress, that that is something that they want to say on the floor of the House. But I think, you know, in in a lot of cases, as Zach said, this is already being used or at least experimented with the, the real capacity gain will be when it's more integrated into the tools. Now, notoriously, congressional CRMs, it's a closed market and uh, not a lot of uh, incentive to be very, uh, you know, innovative on its own. Uh, sometimes these CRMs are the are the last to, to integrate uh, features that are uh, available in commercial, pl- more commercially available platforms broadly. But, you know, there's the opportunity there, I think, for uh, a lot of capacity gains. You know, some of the the, the caveats on the GPT uh, chat GPT page that you mentioned, Justin, are you know kind of the same caveats that would come with an intern who do a lot of the work uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, and and we love the interns, but I think the, you can see uh, these kinds of tools in a, in a very similar way as the first draft that then needs to be reviewed by somebody with. Uh, you know, decision-making power or a little bit more context. It's the other task that Congress does that I think, you know, we address in the piece and and Zach mentioned probably should be a bit of a slower rollout. So we're not going to see, you know, uh, ChatGPT or any other large language model writing legislation or, you know, dealing with complicated policy considerations in the near term. So I think we're already seeing some members experiment with it. Uh, but I, you know, as someone with a lawyer by training and, and spent many hours in the Office of Legislative Counsel working on uh, uh, the health reform bill, I have great respect for the lawyers there and know that this, even the questions are probably driving them crazy. Although Zach and I had a wonderful conversation with some folks working on legal models for LLMs, and uh, we talked about how some of the most important training data for future legal applications of this technology would be the critiques that those lawyers are currently levying against, uh, you know, any drafts that are coming in from a, you know, simple chat GPT run of a, of a draft. So, I mean, I think, I think it's certainly in the future, but um, that, that balance between the experts who protect the code uh, and ensure that what is drafted is not going to mess anything up if it becomes law. I think those gatekeepers will be in place for a very long time. There's certainly like like a need to. There's certainly a use case to like have kind of a you know a, a bill writing kind of tool, and I think you know it's possible that that you know we could develop one as the technology improves and as Congress sort of gets interest in you know the, you know these kinds of modernizations. I think it's not the like most obvious near term thing, and it's not 
something that could be ultimately useful, but isn't isn't the like highest value add right now. Uh, and the reason for that is that you know really highly specialized areas of of expertise and knowledge, uh, particularly ones like this that have a really high cost for for errors that slip through. You're going to need a lot of, uh, you know, kind of human reinforcement learning or similar kind of training methods that would, you know, be very specialized around this set of issues. And so it would take, you know, a big investment to develop expertise that probably doesn't exist internally or in the vendor ecosystem. And it's, it's not clear that it would work at a level where there's a, an error rate that is sort of acceptable. Um, it might be better, you know, than, you know, th there are certainly like issues with bottlenecking at the Office of Legislative Council and there, there. So there is like an argument for it, but I think, you know, the, the, the communication side is a much clearer near-term use case. And also I think, you know, it's not just generating bills, but sort of analyzing all of the sort of regulatory matter out there and the statutes that are out there and thinking about, you know, inform, use, you know, using that to inform, you know, what should we do? What bills should we, what, what statutes haven't been authorized that are still getting funded? Or, you know, here are a bunch of regulations that we haven't touched in, you know, 50 years. Maybe we should look at those or you know, here are inconsistencies between these two different sites. Like, there's a lot out there where statutory analysis could potentially be useful. But, you know, I'm, I think Marcy and I are both skeptical. It's interesting. Our co-author, Daniel, was a little more, you know, favorable to the idea. But, um, you know, I don't think we'll see that uh, really, you know, in, in the next few years. I actually advocate for a different kind of a status for some of the bills. So I think, you know, as we all know, uh, there are some bills that get introduced that basically everybody understands they're never intended to become law. Uh, the so-called message bills. Uh, nobody likes to admit that they're that they're introducing a message bill, but let's face it, many people are introducing message bills. Uh, I think that uh, and Zach and Daniel and I have discussed there, there. You know, there's a possibility that you could use a system like this to draft a message bill, and it could have a status that that just said that it was not yet reviewed by legislative council. Uh, that would allow it to proceed and not be a part of that bottleneck that is backing up the the expert lawyers that are working on bills that probably you know do have a better chance of uh, getting a vote. So I think there's there could be an opportunity there for kind of a a, yeah. a bull drafting piece. And the other place where you can have utility is sort of understanding what what what's in the bills and what they do and how significant they are. You know, you have these you know, massive omnibus packages that that tend to be more frequent now. You have even even generating bill summaries quickly is an area that I think these tools could be really useful for. Currently, you know, CRS does it, but they don't always like happen quickly and not on every bill. And like so stuff like that, where, you know, again, the the uh, the risk of error is not as significant as sort of statute. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I'm old enough to remember when it became possible to word search a bill and that was like a revelation. So now being able to, you know, have a little assistance querying a new, you know, thousand, two thousand page bill to find out if various sections are in there would just, I mean, would be incredible. One thing I liked about this piece is that you, you do list out a um, handful of bullets, things you think Congress should do to consider how to realize the benefits of the use of these types of tools, get ahead of the issue, uh, figure out what's a good way to use these tools, what's perhaps uh, off limits at the moment, um, and you know where those thresholds are. 
But one of the things I wanted to ask you about is really this last section in the piece, which is really about how these tools might change the information environment in which Congress is operating. You talk mm-hmm. about the rise of the lobbying machines. So what what do you think will happen in the kind of broader legislative information environment? I mean, like it's interesting because we're in an environment which is like where, where there's a big well-funded influence ecosystem, but it's not really clear that that's connected to like outcomes or data in a very deep way. It's sort of like the pre-moneyball era, you know, of of sort of DC sports. And there are tools that, you know, big firms and others have already that, you know, digest data and have their kind of models to predict, you know, whether a bill is going to go anywhere or not, or, you know, things like this. But like, I think there is an opportunity to really make it more kind of quant- uh, quantitative and, and metrics driven. Obviously, some things are always sort of outside of the scope of the data that you can get. But I mean, certainly that is an interesting angle. And the other interesting angle is that I think it could could theoretically, if done right, democratize access to kind of influence and lower the barriers to different interest groups sort of organizing and exerting pressure uh, on their representatives. So, you know, you don't have to create a trade association. You don't have to hire a lobbyist for $20,000 a month that you can instead perhaps, uh, you know, deploy some of these tools. So, you know, that would be really interesting in the same way that, you know, kind of the, the web two suite of technologies lowered barriers to, to certain kinds of grassroots activism. You could see something like that here. There is of course a darker side that we talk about as well. Marcy, what about that darker side? Uh, can you imagine a, a you know world where uh, essentially we've got massive amounts of sort of automated propaganda that are pelting members of Congress on a regular basis, perhaps worse so than than today? Um, call-in systems deluged with synthetic audio. What do we imagine? Yeah, I mean Zach's really the master of the the dark worst case scenario. Uh, so I, I, I will default to him on that. But yes, certainly, I, I think we will see those kinds of things. I would give the example, though, I am not terribly worried about its impact, especially if the offices themselves beef up with their own tools to handle it. And, you know, thinking about, let's say, the regulatory context, the public comments, the regulatory context, it's different than Congress. You know, those agencies are required to uh, process every comment and to address any original points that are raised. But whenever I have these conversations and people are uh, really concerned about how you know uh, these tools will impact the regulatory public comment process, I, say, I, I kind of say, well, does it matter if a good idea, if a good you know novel point of law is coming from computer generated? comment or from a person you know sitting in Idaho writing it out by hand, what does it matter? The agency has to consider novel points of law or things that that um, did not make it into their analysis when they're raised. You know, public comments on a regulation are not a democratic system, so it doesn't matter how many you send. You know, it's it's how many original points are made. It's a little different on the Congress side because it is still the case that members of Congress are kind of measuring by the word and by the pound to try to understand what their constituents think. Uh, about different topics. And that's really where I think these tools may prompt a rethink completely uh, about a rethink of that system completely. Um, and that's that's where we kind of discuss in the piece, maybe it 
provides an opportunity to go back to first principles. Is the goal to understand what constituents think about something? If that's the case, then there are better ways to do that than just waiting for somebody to write you a letter. Is the goal to hear uh, you know, a story of someone on the ground and how they're impacted by a policy. If so, maybe the member office needs to do a little bit more proactive outreach to actually find individuals. Is, you know, is the purpose to find consensus, you know, whatever it happens to be, maybe uh, this opens the door for more deliberative town hall meetings or for more kind of interview um, focused processes. But I think the the kind of arms race of many more letters and many more calls responded to by many more, you know, letters and and um, and other forms of, of response that an office could could kick out, you know, very quickly, hopefully brings us back to thinking, OK, what's the point of all of this in the first place and thinking of new ways to do things. And we end the piece by saying maybe even that means getting in a room together. So more cacophony, uh, more volume, essentially, uh, shouldn't translate necessarily uh, to responding to that with more automation, but perhaps we go back to meet, meeting in, in, in real places and, and, and trying to find other forms of insight into what it is that people would like from Congress. I think there will be new value uh, placed on that. And I don't see that as a negative. And we're you know also already in an environment where you know, congressional offices and also agencies seeking comment are bombarded with information. You know, the uh, net neutrality uh, at FCC comment was flooded with various bots on both sides. Even your average uh, comment process is filled with a lot of junk if you follow these things on uh, various APA proceedings at agencies. And, and Congress similarly is bombarded with all kinds of bulk communications and advocacy groups, some of which is you know, legitimate, some of which is, you know, more astroturfy. So I think, you know, changing the nature of this, it could be like the shift from mass bulk advertising to targeted advertising, where it can be a little bit more precision and precise. I think as long as it's rooted in, you know, kind of real people who are really in a district, and if it is ways to sort of amplify and augment and organize those people, I think that is a generally a legitimate kind of function of the democratic process where I think there is a sort of novel risk is where, you know, particularly like very capable nation state actors might use this to, you know, go on YouTube and find some audio and spoof a donor and call a member, uh, you know, with a, with a fake bot pretending to be them ahead of a, a crucial vote. But those are places where, you know, our sophisticated capacities can help respond. You know, our intel community and law enforcement community can help address that. And we're going to have to build new tools to do that. But, you know, there's already very sophisticated kind of efforts like that out there. And there's also analog ones that are unsophisticated. I think there was one a few years ago where a reporter pretended to be, you know, Charles Koch and called a a governor and got, you know, a bunch of information that he shouldn't have. So these things, you know, are part of the process. We're probably going to see some high profile kind of incidents that will spur kind of, you know, reaction and rethinking. And I think that's natural. I don't think the risk here is at a sort of destroyed democracy level, as some people are saying, Um, but they are real. And there are things that, you know, that now is a very good time for for our, our leaders to be proactive and get on top of it. 
I guess the last question does follow from that somewhat. You know, you raise another point that's just this thought about, you know, whether these tools lead to more concentration of power, you know, in the hands of the the wealthy, the influential. Um, is there a way to avoid that? I mean, on some level, I suppose the democratization of these tools might mean the democratization of certain actions and organization of information and utilization of information, perhaps investigation of information that were only available to the wealthy and influential in the past, might be more available to grassroots groups or individuals. Mm -hmm. But is there another way of thinking about that? How do we avoid AI tools, you know, helping the already powerful? Yeah, this was where we were responding to a point that that Bruce Schneier at Harvard raised in an op-ed he did for the New York Times. And I think it was a really, really important point. Of course, by democratization, we can mean a bunch of different things. We can mean that it's open source and open data. We can mean that it has a governance mechanism that is in some way kind of multi-stakeholder or otherwise democratized. Like, you know, and I think, you know, there are several different kind of things we mean by talking about this. It's a little bit nonspecific. And I think here we're also being a little bit nonspecific because it's still, you know, an emerging area. But I think, you know, the basic point we're making is that these tools are not solely the province of large firms or governments, but are, you know, kind of broadly accessible to be kind of created and modified and utilized by a range of sort of interest groups and factions and stakeholders. And I think that's the direction we're heading, even though training these models is very capital intensive, the the moats don't seem to be very wide. And the evidence for that is that there are lots and lots and lots of startups emerging in the space. And we've also seen uh, companies that have had a pretty good, like Microsoft has a pretty good open source interoperability ecosystem approach. And they've said that they're going to, uh, you know, empower people to create, you know, different kinds of models on unique sets of training data that have unique kinds of reinforcement. That said, it's still very sophisticated and, you know, I think there's still this tension between people who want to assert control, fearing the various risks of the new uh, set of technologies and those who want to have the more traditional kind of U.S. approach to innovation, which is generally open and competitive and a little bit chaotic. So that's where we are. Well, and I think even beyond the, the advocacy side of things or the influence angle, there really is an opportunity for taxpayer funded information that is really high quality and nonpartisan, such as GAO reports and CRS reports and the kinds of information that we all pay for that, you know, for, for quite some time in the in the case of CRS was not available to the public, you know. There's an opportunity to use these kinds of tools to uh, make that more widely available. Uh, so I think uh, that's where Congress really needs to see its role as a provider, not just a consumer of information, but as a provider of information and also a contributor to the information ecosystem. There's a lot uh, to be said for hearing information um, transcripts, CRS reports, geo reports, and all of the high quality information that is produced within the government to be more widely available to the public uh, that doesn't have to go behind a paywall to find it or, um, you know, to have it mixed in with everything anybody's ever said on Reddit. So uh, I think for, for Congress to, to really think about its role and how uh, the, these tools could be used for the benefit of, of the ecosystem as a whole uh, would be really important. 
this is also a good good reason to go and kind of kind of complete the project of kind of legislative open data. You know, we've got a huge great set of information on Congress.gov that's you know machine readable and open and but there are still some things we need to kind of go back and add. I think it only goes back to the early 90s or, or so right now, although they have things like the congressional record earlier. And then you can get kind of to the 70s or so from, from Gov, GovTrack or other sites, Marcy's. I think that's about right currently. But there's also, you know, kind of archival CRS reports that aren't up there. And there's other committee documents and various things that could we have, you know, in, in binders and, you know, boxes somewhere at the, you know, in, in the archives that, that should be built out and I think could help augment some of these tools. Well, much to consider and look forward to uh, your piece, Bots in Congress, the risks and benefits of emerging AI tools in the legislative branch. Zach Graves, uh, Marcy Harris, Daniel Schumann, uh, thanks very much for putting this piece together. I hope You'll come back and talk about these issues again in future, perhaps when we have a little more of what you say Congress needs, which is experimental <laughs> evidence of, you know, how and when to apply these things and where it makes sense. Thanks, Thanks so much. Awesome. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.